Well, kids, you can be dismissed if you haven't already, and you go to the nursery down there. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have surely uh, enjoyed coming through the New Testament book by book. Uh, I every time I lay one of these out, and I my, my schedule kind of runs like this. You know, I um, on Monday I usually start laying out the concept and the idea of the book that I'm going to work when I usually get it pretty much in some kind of form that I know what I want to accomplish. So much material that um, it's you just gotta gotta license yourself somewhat, or you'll just you'll never get through it in the time that uh, you, you're allotted to do it. So, uh, and then on Tuesday, I usually come back and, and, and structure it out, and, and, and that's where I make my crucial decision. You know, once I get the idea in my mind, then I know what I want to accomplish. I look at where we're at spiritually. I look at uh, who we got in our church and, you know, where we're at as far as uh, all the different things that we're doing. And I try to blend it where everybody can, can get something from it, but most of all, I try to leave you that when we're done, the next time you read the book of Luke, you'll know what to look for. You'll have a comprehensive understanding of how the gospel of Luke lays itself out, and that uh, when you start reading through any book of the Bible, my goal is to have you uh, to the place where you can really fundamentally understand what you're reading and why you're reading. I think that's one of the biggest problems, and you've heard me say this before. I think one of the biggest problems folks have is the fact that when they begin to read the Bible, they really don't know what to look for when they read. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, yes, the Bible can become boring very quickly. Not that the Bible is a boring book, but when you don't have somebody helping you how to put the Bible together and break it down, certainly there are some passages in there that you'll just, you'll get lost in and then pretty soon, you know, especially if you're a young Christian, your desire to go through it, you know, wanes a little bit. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, Gospel of Luke is our third book, it's the third gospel. We looked at Matthew. We saw how that Christ was portrayed as the King of the Jews. Last week we looked at Mark and we saw how that he was portrayed as a servant. And now Luke is a book that I think is probably one of the most unique books in the Bible. I get a lot of personal things out of Luke that uh, I use in my own personal uh, working with people. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, by now you should be able to begin to put together how that uh, <coughs> the higher educational facilities of this world, for the most part, there are some good ones, but most of them, you should now be able to see the fallacy of, of uh, how they have failed in teaching the Bible. When we started the study of the Gospels, I told you how that most higher critical areas of education about the Bible always take the Gospels and uh, try to get you to believe that uh, they're not authoritative. Most seminaries, most Bible colleges uh, teach what they call the synoptic Gospels, that the Gospels don't match, they don't line up, that it's proof positive that man wrote the Bible instead of God simply because if God would have wrote it, why you would have all the details running the same. And of course, uh, you should begin to see that by now that that's simply not true. Each gospel portrays the Lord Jesus Christ from a different angle. And uh, you've seen Matthew the king, you've seen Mark the servant, and now we're going to look at today at Luke. And when Luke portrays the, the Lord Jesus Christ, he portrays him uh, as the Son of Man. Now that's an interesting term in the Bible. 
Wherever you find the term Son of Man, the term will always be used to denote Christ's humanity. He is the Son of God because uh, He is deified as God. He is a servant because He came uh, to serve His Father. He's the King of the Jews in Matthew because He is the right King that's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. But you're going to see that in uh, Luke, He is portrayed from the human side. And you're going to see Him portrayed as the Son of Man. I don't know how much you know about the Bible. I don't know how much you've broken it down, but the doctrine of the natures of Christ is one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible. In John chapter 19, verse 34 and 35, you don't have to turn to it, but in John chapter 19, verse 34 and 35, <coughs> when Christ is being crucified, you remember the story. He's on the cross. <coughs> he, he's dead. He died. And the Bible says that a Roman soldier comes up and picks up a spear. And a Roman soldier thrusts that spear into his side. And in verse 34, the Bible says that when that Roman soldier put that spear in his side, and forthwith came there out water and blood. Then in verse 35, John goes on and he says, And he that saw it, that was John, bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, <coughs> that ye might believe. Now most people glance over that and read it, and most people are not really what I'd call students of the Word of God. They read it because either they have to or they feel like they're feeling some kind of spiritual obligation. But the student of the Word of God will begin to see that that water and blood, John himself said, it bore record of something. And of course, the, what it bore record of is found in 1 John chapter 5. And this is where John writes again. Uh, and he says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8, he says this, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by, here it comes, water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. Okay, those first two verses say that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. And it's no accident that when Christ died on the cross, and that Roman soldier ran that spear into his side that the Bible says that water and blood came out. And John, who is, by the way, the closest one of the twelve to the Lord, who represents the church in a greater way than the rest of the twelve, that John, you might know John, pick it up. John, John saw that water and blood and said, that bears record of something that Christ did and said that is true. And then when you come to 1 John, he tells you again that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Now what you have is this. The water represents his physical birth. The blood represents his spiritual nature as God. If you would go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, you'd find that there's something unique about the blood that flows through the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's sinless blood. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Jesus Christ, even though He made Himself uh, subservient to God the Father, and He was tasted at all points unlike we are, yet the Bible says without sin. Why? Because Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says that the blood that was in His veins was God's blood. It wasn't human blood in the sense of you and I because He did not have a human father. His father was God. Then you have verse 7. And I must tell you this, 
Verse 7 is the greatest verse in all of the Bible. You want to deal with somebody about the Trinity? If you're dealing with somebody that doesn't believe there is a Trinity, there's a couple number of places you could go. The greatest place you'll go is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. The greatest verse in all of the Bible that supports and teaches the doctrine of the Trinity of the, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. Now, I would be less than an honest Bible teacher if I told you that that verse is totally removed from the new NIV and all the other translations on this planet because the man that put the text together for the NIV did not believe that Jesus was God. His name was Origen all the way back in Alexandria, Egypt. So you'll find in any new modern translation when you come to 1 John chapter 5, it will leave 7 and jump right into 8. And they'll take out the greatest verse in the Bible that lays out the Trinity, which says this. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Notice how he changed the Lord Jesus Christ to the Word, just like John chapter 1 does in verse 12, showing you that the Word was made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So it's no wonder here we find in verse 7 where there's three that bear record in heaven and the three are the Father, the Word, that's Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Take that verse out of your Bible and you don't have a doctrine of the Trinity anymore. Then verse 8, and this is our verse. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. The water was a picture of his physical birth. The blood is a picture of his supernatural being as the Son of God. One represents the human side of Christ, the water. The other one represents the deity side of Christ, the blood. He didn't have human blood in his veins. He had God's blood in his veins, Acts 20, 28. And what we've got here, when John sees the water and blood, what he's saying that it bears record to is the fact that Jesus Christ <coughs> had a sinless spirit, he had a sinless birth, and he had sinless blood. And that's why his blood had enough redemption in it to save the soul of every man and woman that ever lived on the face of this planet from Genesis to Revelation. Because he had a sinless spirit, he had a... He had a sinless birth, and he had sinless blood. And you're going to find that Luke will deal with the human side of Christ, and chapter by chapter you will see him laid out as the Son of Man. And uh, as I said before, Luke is an incredible book. I've always enjoyed Luke. It's probably one of the books that, uh, that you have to dig a little deeper to see some of the stuff, but once you understand how it's laid out, it becomes a pretty easy. Now let me give you a basic breakdown of the book. In chapter 1 through chapter 3, you see the Son of Man prepared. In chapter 4 through chapter 8, you see the Son of Man identified. In chapter 9 through chapter 18, you find the Son of Man teaching on the great truths of the issues of life. And in chapter 19 through chapter 24, you find the Son of Man exalted by God through the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's many practical principles found in the book of Luke. In fact, when I uh, do biblical counseling, and I, I, you know, we're, we're in the process of starting a biblical counseling uh, service that really takes people and their problems, family problems, children problems, whatever problems, and brings them through 
and laying out the Word of God. And some of you are going to be obviously working with me in that area as we grow and you show a knack for it and you want to do it. So, uh, but many of my counseling format principles I, I take out of the book of Luke. Why? Because Luke, book of Luke will do with, deal with the human side of Christ. And in dealing with the humanity of Christ, you're going to see him dealing with humanity's problems in a greater way than you're going to see in the other Gospels. And you're going to find, as I've already said, Matthew is going to put the emphasis on the King of Israel. Luke, uh, Mark is going to deal with him as a servant and showing you the service between the Father and the Son. And we defined the difference last week between service and ministry. But when it comes to Luke, you're going to see the inner workings of Christ as the Son of Man dealing with human beings. Luke is the greatest book that shows you and I as human beings how to deal with another human being on their spiritual problems. It's an incredible book. And you're going to find as we look at it here, we're going to go through chapter by chapter. Sometimes we're going to go through multiple chapters because that's how they lay themselves out. But I'm going to try to give you as best I can a basic layout of how this great book lays itself out with some incredible information that will help you not only understand about Luke, help you understand about yourself, help you understand about maybe people that you're working with at work, give you some insight on some things, and just generally lay out the book of Luke for you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless us this morning. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love You. We thank You, Father, for all the good things that You've done for us, for Your mercy, for Your goodness. We ask You now, Father, this morning to bless us as we come to Your Word. We ask You to open up our hearts, show us what You'd have us to see and understand, and let us leave today a little richer. Let us leave today with our spiritual bank accounts a little fuller. Let us leave today with our relationship with you a little closer as we understand this great book and its great truths. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, now in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we're going to deal with the aspect of the Son of Man prepared. And we're going to look within that, and we're going to see His birth and His bloodline. It's interesting, and I think that everybody ought to pay attention to the preface to Luke, and that's in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It kind of gives you an understanding of why the book is being written. And he says this, For as much as, have, as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemeth good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of the, those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now verse 4 says that the book of Luke was written that you and I might know the certainty of those things that we have been instructed in. And that's a great preface to this book. Now I, I don't know, like I said, how much you know about the Bible, but God could not have picked a better man to write about the humanity of Christ than he could Luke. You know why? Because the greatest issue down through history, other than the Word of God itself, was Jesus Christ and who he was. Hey, Christ hadn't been dead 20 minutes, then it began to circulate around that he wasn't virgin born. The idea that Christ was not virgin born, that he uh, was a counterfeit, circulated very shortly after the resurrection of Christ. That's why that uh, Christ, uh, God had him go down into Jerusalem, uh, had many of the dead go down in Jerusalem, 
and, had, and, and, and show themselves after the resurrection. That's why he immediately showed himself to his followers. He, and, and there was over 500 witnesses that saw Christ after he was dead, after he had risen, come back and testify that he was dead, but now he's alive, and testify to the gospel's sake. And in the book of Luke, we're going to look at some of those areas and around his birth. We're going to look at his bloodline for just a few moments. And there's no better man to do that than Luke. You know why? Because Luke is a medical doctor. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, you find that he is called the beloved physician. He's a doctor. And there is nobody with any better credibility writing about somebody's physical birth and the human side than a medical doctor. And that's why God chose Luke to do it. Many times you're taught, and you hear this a lot, that Luke was a Gentile, that he was the only apostle uh, that was not a Jew that was a Gentile. That is totally 100% superstition. There isn't any place anywhere other than the writings of the Roman Catholic Church that suggests that Luke was ever a Gentile. And the idea that Luke would be a Gentile just escapes me from anybody who can understand that that is a Jewish book. Every writer in it's a Jew. And uh, for the fact that, that Luke would be a Gentile is just absolutely spurious with no documentation, no proof anywhere on the face of planet Earth. And um, it's just one of those things that come up and you find it and you just got to understand where it comes from. But Luke, uh, who also writes the book of Acts, is without a doubt the best man qualified to comment on the physical birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find in the first three chapters that subject. In chapter 1... Verses 5 through 25, we see our old friend Gabriel. Last time we found Gabriel was in all the way back in the book of Daniel. Daniel uh, Gabriel is an interesting guy. He's an angel. And uh, he seems to be associated with the uh, first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows up back in Daniel chapter 9, and the prophecies back there are very definitely the first coming of Christ. He shows up here in this chapter dealing with uh, Zacharias and uh, Elizabeth, about the birth of John the Baptist, and then a little bit later on he goes to Mary in chapter 1, verse 27, and through the rest of the chapter lays it out around that. There's two angels that are mentioned in the Bible that are good angels. One of them is Gabriel, and the other one is Michael. And they seem to have two different tasks or two different jobs. Michael always will be dealt with around the nation of Israel. Michael is an archangel. And as an archangel, his specific task in the Bible seems to be dealing with the nation of Israel. You always find him dealing with the nation of Israel in a very specific way. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the book of Revelation there, when the devil gets bound by a chain and dumped in the bottomless pit. It was all surrounding the nation of Israel and watching over the nation of Israel. Gabriel, on the other hand, seems to be dealing with the, second com- the first coming of Christ and proclamation of Christ being born. So in chapter 1, that's exactly what you have. In chapter 2, we find the record of his birth. In fact, uh, chapter 2 runs 52 verses, and it brings you from his birth all the way to the place that he's 12 years old. That chapter brings you up for the first 12 years of of Jesus as he grows up. And this is where you have the the true birth, not like we saw in uh, uh, Matthew where it's a couple of years later. But this is where the manger story takes place. And this brings us all the way up to the 12th year. Very interesting verse in verse 26. Very interesting verse. And I don't have time to get into it tonight. But uh, in verse 26, you find the strange little phrase that uh, around his birth, or the time of his birth, 
that the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, makes a reference in verse 26 to the Lord's Christ. This is the first reference where you find a, def a definition of the two Christs in the Bible. Of course, we know the word Christ comes from the word Lord. The word Lord comes from the word adonte, which means anointed. And we know that in the book of Isaiah or, uh, 14, Ezekiel 28, there's another Christ, and that is the anointed cherub which covered the throne. The devil's a Christ. We saw it the other night on Thursday night when I showed you the parallels how the devil imitates Christ. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but sometime when you come over for coffee and cheesecake, ask me about the two babies that were born that night. It'll be an interesting discussion. And the Bible throws that verse in there to show you that this is the start of two Christs. One, the Lord's Christ, and the other one, the Antichrist. Wow, what a study it is as you come through the Bible. But you know what? When you come to chapter 2, verse 23, let me show you something how the Holy Spirit of God puts your Bible together. These are things you want to look for. What I'm going to show you is one of the most beautiful things you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And the Bible is filled with these. Now down in verse 22, of verse 2, it says this. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, Old Testament. Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to that which is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now verse 23 says, as it is written. Where it is written is Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, and in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, this is what you've got. And what they're doing here is what the Old Testament law tells them they're supposed to do. They're supposed, and this was required by all the, all, the, all the babies when they were born, is go into the temple, and when you look at this, and what a great lesson this is. Now here's a case where the Holy Spirit of God just drops something in here to catch somebody's attention if you're paying attention and show you one of the greatest truths you're ever going to find. If you would go back to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, and this is the passage that they're making reference to in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, you would find that when they come into the temple and they're bringing in the, every male that openeth the womb, you'll find that they are told to bring a lamb, two turtle doves, and two young uh, pigeons. And when you come back to uh, Luke here, you'll find it says in verse 24, and to offer according to that which is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Luke chapter 2 doesn't say anything about the lamb. It doesn't tell her to bring a lamb. You know why the Holy Spirit of God didn't tell you about the lamb in there? I'll tell you why. Because she's carrying the lamb in her arms. It says the two pigs and the two turtle doves and never mentions the lamb because when John sees him coming a little bit later on, he says, Behold, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is what Abraham was talking about all the way back in Genesis chapter 22 when he was going to offer up Isaac. And when he put him on the altar, and he was actually going to kill him, and God stopped his hand. And before that, when he was binding up his son, his son looked at his daddy, and he said, Daddy, uh, here's the fire, here's the wood, here's the altar, where's the lamb? And Abraham makes one of the most prophetic statements in all the Bible when he says, Son, God himself will provide a lamb. And he did. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here comes the lamb. So when Mary comes down there and Joseph to offer that Old Testament concept, they bring two turtle doves and they two bring two pigeons. They don't go get a lamb. You know why? She's carrying that lamb in her arms. 
Well, one of these days that lamb's going to become the sacrificial lamb that was typified all through the Old Testament. It's going to wash away the blood and the sins of every man and woman on the face of this planet. Behold, the Lamb of God. Just one of those little things the Holy Spirit of God drops in there. Then you come chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Another great little concept. Now you'll begin to see how we're building on some of the things we looked at. I showed you uh, when we come through the Old Testament about the concept of the third day. How that that third day, always, third day always represents the period of time from the crucifixion to the millennium. And you've got uh, the Christ will always show up when you find the third day in the Bible. will always be a reference now here, to the millennial reign of Christ. Now here's a place in 41 through 52 that he's 12 years old. 12 years old. 12 years old. you got 12 tribes of Israel. And his parents lose him for two days. They lose him for two days, and they find him after three days. Picture of the nation of Israel in the church age losing the concept of Christ, but then getting him back in the millennium after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's an incredible the way the Bible puts itself together. Then we come in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we deal with the genealogy of Christ, which goes back to Adam through Mary. And of course, if you know anything about the line back there, you know that Mary is in the line of David, but she comes through Nathan. And this is how God protected Christ. And if you come down through chapter 3, it says uh, uh, that uh, it comes back, uh, he talks about Joseph, and it says, which was supposed to be the father of Jesus, in verse 23. And this is a great key to the Bible that shows you how that the Holy Spirit of God protected the Scriptures from Jeremiah chapter 22, that said that no man from the kingly line could be on the throne if he had a bloodline that was a human bloodline. And so that's why when uh, Christ gets his blood, uh, he gets his bloodline through Mary and uh, not through his father. And that's why when, he got, when this whole thing lays out, it runs this story back through, and it goes back through Mary, uh, which uh, puts the whole thing in perspective for you and shows you how that... Uh, the Holy Spirit of God protected that line and protected the Scriptures. And where Matthew takes him back through the kingly line and shows him that in the lineage of David he's the king, in Luke the human line shows you that he didn't have a human father, that the line given is through his mother. And of course uh, there's some other great material in there that is down where the whales live, man, about him starting this genealogy at 30 years of age and then running it right back to Adam. And it says there, strange verse, and Adam, Adam, which was the Son of God. That study will take you about five years to break down and come through. One of the greatest concepts in all of the Bible. All right, we come to chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And in chapter 4, we see the Son of Man now identified. And uh, the identification that you pick up here very quickly in uh, chapter 4, verse 23, is one of the great physicians. And uh, he's come to a world that is sick. Not sick with sickness, but sick with sin. And there's a great, some great parallels here and some great concepts here. You'll find that these are the great chapters that show you that uh, uh, the issue with the Lord Jesus Christ with the scribes and the Pharisees was the fact that of his doctrine. And it first says in verse, chapter 4, verse 32, that they were astonished at his doctrine. And uh, you'll find, if you go on down and read and put all the material together, that uh, it's doctrine that is what establishes authority. The scribes and Pharisees didn't have any doctrine. We don't have any doctrine in the church today. And the reason why we don't have any doctrine in the church is because we don't have any authority anymore. The Word of God is gone. 
You can't have doctrine without authority, and you can't have authority without doctrine. So you find when Christ shows up in chapter 4 that the scribes and the Pharisees and the people are astonished at his doctrine because he speaks to them with one having authority, not as the scribes and uh, the Pharisees. And you find here a great principle, most, a great principle. And it's a great principle that I use in dealing with people all the time because you're going to find that when you start to deal with people, you do a lot of what a doctor does. When you go in to see your doctor, the similarities between you as a Christian or me as a Christian uh, is an incredible parallel. When you go into a doctor, you tell him that you don't feel right physically. And he listens to what you have to say, and then he makes a diagnosis. And then he makes a diagnosis based on what he's read, what he's studied, his prior medical practice, and basically what bug is flying around at that particular time in town. And then once he makes that prediction, he gives you a prescription. And you go to the pharmacy or uh, wherever, and you get whatever he tells you, or you do whatever he tells you to do. And you go, you know, so you got, he says you got strep throat, and I'm going to give you an antibiotic to knock that bug out of you. Well, what he does is he writes out a little prescription, and you take that prescription over to Walgreens or some of those places, you know, or Osco, and, and, uh, and you put it in there, and about six months later, it's ready. And you go in there, and you get your prescription, and then you go home, and you follow the directions on the little pill bottle. Take two times a day, three times a day, whatever the case. Now, here's what we all do. And I say, we all do. You say, you don't know me. I know you better than you think I know you, because I know me, and we're the same. You know what I do? First of all, the medicine always tastes bad. I have never tasted a pill, and I have a tough time swallowing. I can't swallow things well. And I don't know what my problem is, you know, but I just can't. And, you know, I, so I got to do it carefully. And I've never been a great pill swallower. I'm always a chew, I chew up the pill. And I'll tell you what, medicine tastes terrible. And if at any time it'll force you to swallow, it's when you've got some antibiotic that just tastes like you're eating rust off an old license plate. Man, I ain't kidding you. And I'll tell you, you know what? I do the same thing. You start taking the medicine, and then the moment you start feeling better, you don't take it anymore because it tastes bad. It's too restrictive. You've got to remember to take it. And then besides that, human nature is such, the moment we start feeling better, we think we're cured. And so we think now we know better that, do you see where this is going? We think now we know better than the doctor who spent his whole life diagnosing problems and diagnosing medicine for it. So you come to the place where you stop. Two weeks later, you're back in the doctor's office again because you had a relapse and you got sick again. And you know what? It's the same way when you're dealing with people. You're going to have a couple come in. You're going to have some young man come in or some gal come in. And they're going to, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to sit down and uh, you're going to tell you their problem. Only it's going to be a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. And then you're going to listen to them. And then you're going to, you're going to draw on what you studied, what you know, your ministerial experience. And then you're going to give them a spiritual prescription. And I'm telling you right now, just as you and I take the medicine till we get feeling better, God's people or any human being, once they come up against God and you as the practicing physician on site, 
Tell them what they need to do as soon as they, how many times have I started to work with somebody, a couple, an individual, who when they come in, they were just ready to die. And they just thought they weren't going to make it. And they were so thankful. They hugged you around the neck. They just thanked you a thousand times. How better I feel now because you lifted the burden off of me. And you say, okay, but you got to take the medicine daily or you're going to get sick again. As soon as they start feeling better spiritually, they dump the church. They dump the Bible. They dump God. They dump everybody just like we do with the medicine we take. There isn't a lot of difference between the two. When he laid out the concept of the great physician, he was showing you something. He was showing you something. In fact, it's in these chapters here that are, is one of the two greatest questions asked in the Bible. And I, I look at these questions and it just blows my mind. Because here's a man who came to Israel. Here's a man that was a great physician. Who's the man that could unstop deaf ears, give eyesight back to the blind, raise dead people, and do all the things that, that he was doing. And he had all the credibility in the world, much more than you and I. And yet he says in chapter 6, verse 46, which I think is one of the greatest questions in all of the Bible, he says, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That's one of the greatest questions asked in all of the Bible. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody claim to be a Christian, claim to be a child of God, claim to do this, claim to do that, when the bottom line is, in their life, it is filled from the time they get up to the time they go to bed of doing what they want to do. There's never any spiritual thing. Their whole week is, let me get what I want to do out, and if there's any time left, I'll throw it God's way. But you know what? Don't hold your breath, God, because there probably won't be. And we look at that, and we play the game. We play the game. Mom and dads play the game. I mean, everybody plays the game. Preachers play the game. You have to play the game to some degree. And everybody pretends, you know, this, when the bottom line is simply this. The bottom line, if you claim to be a child of God, and maybe that's the problem. But if you claim to be a Christian, and I'm going to say again, maybe that's the problem. But if you claim to be a child of God, and I say that only based on the fact that the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, all things are passed away, all things become new, there should be a difference. But sometimes, most of the time, many times you don't see it. But the bottom line to me is this. Why do we call ourselves a child of God and repeatedly, why do we say God is my Father, Lord, Lord, and we look at Him and then we turn right around and do not the things which He says? Uh, there, there's two questions in the Bible that, that I've never figured out. And you can ask me just about any question you want to ask in the Bible. You can lay out the thing and I could probably give you some kind of answer. But that's one question I don't have the answer to. And I'll tell you another two questions. I'll give you the other one. It's in Galatians 4.16. This is another one that always stumped me. Now Paul, Paul asked this one. He says this to the church at Galatia. He says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, you know what? You've got people lie to you all the time. Ladies, there's men in your life that have lied up one side and down the other to you. Now, and, 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 and guys, there's been women that have lied to you. Everything lies to you. Everybody lies to you. Somebody's trying to call you on the phone right now so they can lie to you. Everybody lies about everything, but the problem is, the bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. Why, when somebody tells you the truth, do you get upset? You don't get upset with your liar friends. 
You don't get upset with the world that lies to you. You want to buddy with them. You want to drink beer with them. You want to run around with them. You want to hang out with them. Why in the world do you call God Lord, 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 and then do not what he says, and when somebody tells you the truth, why do you become their enemy? I've never understood those two things. I've never understood it. And then when he comes down down in chapter 6, he gives you an example of that with the two men. One builds his house upon a rock. The other one builds it on the ground. The one builds it on a strong foundation. The other one doesn't. And of course, when the winds blow and everything takes place and everything happens, the one on the rock stands and one on this old world falls through. But I'm telling you, that's the problem. You're a physician. When you win somebody to Christ... You are the attending physician at that birth. You have just now been the physician spiritually that has used the Word of God to deliver a baby Christian into this world from the world. And now you have a responsibility. When somebody comes in and they start to talk to you about problems in their life, you have an obligation to listen to them, draw back on your vast information resource of spiritual knowledge and then give them a diagnosis give them a solution give them a prescription and then it's up to them to take the medicine but you're going to find in the world that we live in today that just like you and me and we're all the same you have to really work at being a good christian you have to really work at doing what's right it's not a natural thing that's not an excuse that just says that most of god's people are lazy but the bottom line to the whole thing, and when you put it all down and you get it all laid out and it all comes down, you're going to find that most God's people, they just want to treat the symptoms. They don't really want to solve the problems. And they will tell you whatever you want to hear to get you off your, their back or feel good for a moment of time, and once they start feeling good, off they go. Well, we come to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have the great picture of Jesus as the friend of sinners. We have the great story of the centurion and his great faith. You know there's four centurions in the Bible? Four of them. And they're all good guys. And they're all a, a great study. And there, uh, there's some stuff there that's, that's really good if you want to dig it out. Then we find in verse 11 he, he raises the widow's son from the dead. Then in chapter 7, verse 36 and 50, he goes to dinner at, at one of the Pharisees' house. The Pharisee had seen all these things, heard all these things, wants to have him over for dinner. And while they're at dinner, what a great example. While they're at dinner, here comes a sinner. And this sinner lady shows up at his feet, where all sinners need to show up. And she gets an alabaster box, you know, and with her tears, and the Bible says in her hair, she puts the oil on his feet, and she wipes his, his feet with her hair. And you know what? It's such a beautiful picture. The Pharisee just can't get it. He just can't get through his tradition, his Pharisaical ideas, his great religious concepts to see how you have a real act of worship with God and a real relationship with God. And it says for time and eternity in chapter 7 that Jesus is a friend of sinners. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, or, or whatever's taken place in your life. When you start to deal with religious hypocrisy versus good old-fashioned sin, you're always better off to deal with a good old-fashioned sin because the scribes and the Pharisees in this world just cannot get to the real relationship that that scribe, he just couldn't figure out why that lady was sitting at his feet. They never figure it out. Then you come to chapter 8. 
Now, here's a great lesson for you folks that, that uh, are thinking about some point working on a higher level in people's lives. Here's a great lesson that I use in biblical counseling and dealing with people. Now, here's the story in chapter 8. Pick it up here in verse 26 through 40. You don't have to. I'll just tell you the story. Save you time. He got a man with a devil for a long time. This guy is a picture of an unsaved man. Now, these principles in this story is about a demon-possessed man, which is for us translates as a picture of an unsaved man. But I want to tell you that these principles also work both ways. They'll work in a, in a saved man's life, too. I mean, the bottom line principles are the bottom line principles, but this story shows you how you deal with it. It gives you some great insight. And now I guess that's the key about dealing with people. It's not so much knowing where the verses are, but knowing how to apply the verses and give the right information uh, given every circumstance and situation, because they're different. All right, here we got a man in verse 26 and 27. The Bible says Satan is in control of his life. He's an unsaved man. The Bible says that this man is naked, picture of the world. He's worldly. Bible says that he hangs out in the tombs. He's hanging out with other dead people who are pictures of unsaved people. And then the Bible tells you that he has no house. You know what? He's homeless. He's lost his family. His sinful lifestyle, his running with the unsaved world, his nakedness, his hanging out with the crowd down at the sports bar and not going home and staying out has now come to the place where it has brought him to the place where he has no family anymore. He has lost his family. Now the answer is found in verse 38 through 40. And it's a simple answer because it's the answer that every dead man, every demon-possessed man needs. He meets Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, it has a tendency to change your life. And this man gets his life changed. Picture of him getting saved. Notice what happens once he gets rid of the demon. Notice what happens once he no longer is under satanic control. Notice what happens immediately when he gets saved and he loses the influence of the devil in his life. The Bible says the first thing, he gets in his right mind. You know what mind that is? That's let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He gets a new thought process. Why? Because he got a new heart. I'll tell you the next thing, he ain't naked anymore. Now he's wearing clothes. And in verse 38, we see that he's a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have been passed away because immediately he wants to follow Jesus. Right off the bat, I want to follow Jesus. And he runs up and says, God, you've delivered me. This demon is God. I've got saved. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. I want, and I want you to see the wisdom in counseling here. Because this is the first time where Jesus has somebody who gets saved, who wants to follow him, who wants to be his disciple, who wants to spend the rest of his life going where he goes, seeing the things that he does, and being part of what he does, that Jesus says, No. You know what he says, My, verse 38? He says, no. He says, return to your house first. And verse 39, show them. You see the wisdom in that? He says, no, you go back where you've caused the most damage in your family. Don't be out running around evangelizing the world when you have hurt your family 
bid injustice to your family and go back and don't just tell them there's a difference. Verse 39 says, show them there's a difference. Return to your house first. That's where you start. That's where you've done the most damage. That's why the Bible says, prove all things. Don't tell them you've changed. Take the time and let them see the change in your life. Hey, they, you have lied to them so much. You have told them so many falsehoods. You have been so stupid in your walk and in your relationship with your family that if you go home and say, hey, I got saved, they're going to laugh you to scorn. They're going to say, oh boy, dad got religion. Oh boy, mom's now, she's a Jesus freak. And I'll just give it about 20 minutes. It'll change. You've got to do more than tell them. You have got to show them there is a change in your life. And he said to this man, no, don't come with me. Get off the bus. You're not going with us. You go home. You go where you did the most damage and you start right there. Your wife's hurting. Your kids are out doing what you used to do. Your kids are, your whole family is gone. You have been an embarrassment. You've been, a, you've been everything that you don't need to be to them. And that's where you've got to start. What a great principle that is. You've got to start where you did the most damage. And he sends that man back to his family and says, start right there first. First time I start to do with young couples when they come in and have marriage, the first thing I'll say to the husband is you need to start doing to her what you need to be. Things I talk to the dads, you need to go back and you need to start being to your parents what you have failed to be. Mom, you need to go back and be to your kids what you need to be. The whole thing goes right back to where the most damage has been done. That's where you start your ministry. You got no business evangelizing the world in Africa when your own family's in a mess. You go back and you show them there's things you can do in any situation. I don't care what it is. There's always something you can do that will be the right thing to do. Great counseling principle. That in chapter 9, we have another great story. And that story here is in uh, chapter fi- uh, uh, 9, verse 57 through 62. And it's a story about a guy who wants to be his disciple. And it says, And it came to pass, in verse 57, as they went their way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Oh, how many times have I heard that? And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are the home of my house. And Jesus said unto them, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now here's one of these places in the Bible, and I've told you about this before. This is where Christ is kind of out of character. I mean, I know a place where it says, Honor thy father and thy mother. It's the Old Testament law. But he's kind of maybe having a bad day, maybe a little ticked off. Maybe just kind of out of sorts. Or maybe just trying to teach us a great principle. You know what I've learned? I've learned every time that the Lord takes a turn from the way that He's supposed to be to another way. I remember one time a dear sweet lady came up to him. Said, my daughter is vexed with the Spirit. Help me. She, and she even said, Lord, she put everything in the right place. He said, excuse me, get out of the road, I'm trying to walk here. 
She went and got the disciples and said, help me, talk, carry my cause. And he, he turned her down a second time. The third time, he insulted her about her race issue. He made the race card up and made fun of her because of her race. Now, somebody said, now, boy, that sounds like the lowly Galatian from Judea that walks down the road and, and Jesus is the friend of sinners. Sure it does. Every time you find some place in the Scriptures where Jesus is acting out of character, he's showing you a great truth. He's, he's, he's laying something out to show you a great concept. And a great concept here is discipleship, being Christ's disciple. And a great concept of discipleship. You know, now I promise you, if this kid would have come up here and one of them comes up here and he says, I'll go follow you, but he says, I need to go, I need to, my father just died and I need to go back and bury my father. Jesus looks at him and said, hey kid, let the dead bury the dead. Woo! That's not the sweet spirit of Christ. If that kid would have said, yes sir, let him stink in the sun. Christ would have said, that's good, now go bury your father. If he had said, that guy said, hey, I want to follow you, I just got to go say bye to my mama. Jesus said, Mama's boy, you put your hand to the plow, look back, you ain't worth nothing. Kid said, you're right, Lord, let's go. Jesus said, go say goodbye to your mama. See, he, the principle here is this. Now, he told you in Luke chapter 14, a little bit farther on, verse 26, that you're supposed to hate your parents. You know that. Every teenager finds that verse first thing he finds. <laughs> what he's saying is, not to hate your parents. What he's saying is your love for God and your love for your parents by comparison, one should be hatred toward the other. He's not telling you to hate your parents. And he's not telling these guys not to go home. He's not telling these guys to, not to, uh, he, he's answered him in a, in, a, in a biblical concept way that illustrates a great truth. And when a young guy comes up and he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, I don't have any place to lay my head tonight. You know what he's thinking? saying, you better count the cost because there ain't no comforts in this world when you walk with God. The road is tough. When the other kid comes up and he says, I want to follow you, but I got to go bury my father. You know what he's saying? He's saying, son, the truth of the matter is there's lots of young men that never get into the ministry and never do what's right because their families hold them back. And there may come a time when you're supposed to honor your mother and you're supposed to do everything that's right, but there comes a time when you have to choose between them and God if they're going to keep you from the kingdom of God's sake. You have a right to obey your mom and dad down the line, up one side and down the other. But when mom and dad says you can't get saved, that's where they go their way and you go your way. They can't tell you what to do with your spiritual soul when it comes to God. Just like somebody says, well, you know what? We're going to ban prayer in school. Really? You mean you're going to ban somebody saying a prayer over the loudspeaker? You ain't going to ban prayer. You can't ban prayer unless you shoot me. And then that's the best favor you'd do for me. I'd answer the prayer in person when I got up there. <laughs> then the other guy comes up and he says, I want to follow you, but I just got to go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, you know what? Prophet hath no honor in his own country. As long as you keep looking back in life, you'll never look forward where you're going. And for a disciple, you see, a disciple is someone who's disciplined. He understands that the road with Christ is not a comfortable road sometimes. 
He understands that when Christ showed up, he made it very clear he didn't come to put together. He came to divide. And sometimes it's families that get divided. You have a Catholic, raised Catholic all your life, and you get saved and try to do what's right, watch where the fur flies. And he understood that there were some people who want to serve God, but they just keep looking back at the world and just thinking what they would have had if they just might have had this or they might have got that. As long as you do that, you'll never get focused on what God wants you to do. Then we come to chapter 10. Now, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. There's 31,176 verses in a King James 1611 authorized version. This is my favorite one out of all of them. You realize it's the only verse in the Bible that tells you that Jesus rejoiced over something? I mean, you think if there was only one verse in the Bible that says he rejoiced over something, you, don't you think God's people would want to know that? I mean, do you want to know what, when the Bible says Jesus wept, don't you want to know what he wept over? Well, here's a place, and the only place in the Bible where it says he rejoiced. And 99% of 999% of God's people don't even know he rejoiced over. I know what he rejoiced over. This is why I'm such a happy guy. This thing helps me in those times when you feel like you're in the middle of battle and there ain't anybody that's on your side and you got all the weight of the world on your shoulders and sometimes you're out there, you're just scratching your head saying, am I, am I right or am I off the tree with this thing? Oh, look at verse 21. I love it. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Only place in the Bible. Only place in the Bible that says he rejoiced. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent scribes and Pharisees and hast revealed them unto babes. I love it. You know what he was happy about? He was happy the fact that God hid the word from the educated scholars and gave it to common ordinary people just like me and you. I'm happy about that. I'm happy about that. Oh, I'm happy about that. Only place in the Bible where it says he rejoiced and he rejoiced over that God clouded the minds of the unsaved and saved liberals who thought, and scribes and Pharisees, who thought that they stood in judgment of the Word of God and hated His doctrine, hated His authority, and God just sealed up their understanding they couldn't get a thing, and He gave it to babes. That's you and me. Anybody just dumb enough to believe it. Then we come to chapter 11. Now I want everybody to turn here. But if you don't get anything else out of this, this is going to explain why I am the rabid person that I am. You're going to walk out of here today understanding a little bit better why I am the way I am and why I preach the way I preach and why I will not compromise on certain issues. And I'm a fair guy. But I want you to, I want you to look at chapter 11. <clears throat> Verse 1. And it came to pass, as he was praying, in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Follow with me as I read verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Is that what it says? Now some of you wonder why I'm so dogmatic about the King James Bible over the other translations on planet Earth. Last week I said some pretty harsh things. 
And I told you how the Christianity had bought into the fact that they got the devil's Bibles, they got the devil's toys, and they got the devil's music, and they got everything that goes along with it. And some of you maybe walked out of here thinking, well, you know, I just think you shouldn't talk that way. Well, here's, what, I'm gonna, here's why I talk that way. What I just quoted you of the Lord's Prayer in chapter 11, verse 2, is what's found in the NIV. Twenty words are left out. In fact, if you want to get conclusive on it, you'll find that there are 64,000 changes between a Queen James Bible and any other translation out there on the market. That's because they don't come from the same text, but that's beside the point. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. If you would go to the library and pull out a book that is called the Dogma and Ritual of High Black Magic, you would find on page 84 this prayer listed as a prayer to Lucifer as God, just the way you find it in the new NIV. If you would get an occult encyclopedia, you would find this prayer in there as a prayer to the devil or Lucifer as God. If you would go out and get Catherine Paulson's book called The Complete Book of Magic and Witchcraft, you would find this prayer listed right in the middle of it as a prayer to Lucifer as God. Now, how in the world that this thing, and I'll tell you something else, this prayer as I read in the NIV isn't found on any Greek text, any place on the face of this planet. I will give you $1 million to in gold bullion on demand. If you show me one text, somebody says, Ah, Bob, you're just blowing smoke. You couldn't even get a million dollars together. I get it for you. Find the text. It does not exist. Now, how does this happen? Back in the second century, there's a man called Macon the Heretic. His contemporaries called him the Beast. Macon the Heretic was schooled in the Alexandrian thought of Origen, Tertullius, Pantanus, and all the other boys that corrupted the Greek manuscripts out of Antioch. It's Macon the heretic, who was a demon-possessed devil worshiper, who edits this prayer and becomes a prayer of the pagans, that finds its way in the dogma and ritual of high black magic as a prayer of Lucifer, that finds its way into the cult encyclopedia, that finds its way into the complete book of magic and witchcraft, and then, whoo, finds its way into your Bible. And the way that gets in is because back in the 1888s, two men, Westcott and Hort, who did the Greek text from which the RSV came from and also did the Greek text that from the NIV come from and every other translation in between, called Sinaitic and Vatiganus, put that prayer into into the text simply because that both Westcott and Hort, and you don't have to take my word for it, you can go get any number of books. The two I suggest would, they would be their own autobiographies, which they told many, many years after they did the translation, from which your new Bible comes from, that both of them were members of a ghost guild and used a medium spirit just like the witch at Endor, to make sure their translation was the right translation. In other words, they worked through the devil, and that's why they put that prayer in there. The prayer got in with Constantine. Remember him last week? 
when he married the church to the world and brought in the Easter bunnies and all the little things we talked about last week, he allowed that prayer to be put in that text so he wouldn't, because it was a prayer of the pagans and he would not violate them and gave them their own prayer, which winds up being a prayer to Lucifer and all the black magic books that any witch on planet Earth understands and everything in there is broken down and comes through and that is found in your Bible in the new translation. And I'll just tell you, that's why I say what I say. And that's why I will continue to say what I say. And I don't care if you're the smartest man in the world. If you believe that junk, you're the dumbest man in the world. I'm telling you what, it doesn't take a lead beam to fall on my head to know what I'm up against in the last time before Christ comes back. There is 20 words left out. 64,000 chains. Not one Greek manuscript on this planet. Where do you find that? Oh, you find it in an occult book. You find it in the occult encyclopedia. You find it in a book on black magic and witchcraft. That's where you find it. Stuck right in there with two men who use demon mediums to translate every new Bible on the market. That's why I'm telling you, you got the devil's Bible. But don't listen to me. That's just me. I'm telling you, there's more going on out there than meets the eye, and the average child of God does not have a clue. Say it again. Say it again because it's true. Say it again because I like to hear it. <laughs> Only thing would keep the body of Christ from going to Antichrist, the rapture of the church. Now, I would preach that certain places and there would people would be absolutely upset with me. You know why? Because they paid $85 for the new NIV with nice lounge butter, or grandma gave it to them. And my question to you is simply this. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Don't believe me. Take a little trip down to the PL, public library. I mean, just... Take an excursion some Saturday afternoon. Walk in there and say, Hey, I want that book on the devil's Bible. We've got the NIV in it. They'll give it to you. They'll know exactly what to talk about. She'll say, You'll have to get in line. Everybody else is over here trying to get it too. <laughs> Chapter 12, 13, and 14. In those great chapters, we have the downfall of the nation of Israel and really downfall of the church because we find a great lesson here, and that is in the lesson of the leaven of the scribes. Leaven in your Bible is false doctrine. Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you'll find that here's a picture where the false doctrine comes into the church and begins to destroy everything that the church is all about. Great study. Chapter 14, you'll find Israel's rejection of Christ, and you'll find the calling of the Gentiles, the church age. What a beautiful picture that is. There's a difference between this one and the one in Matthew, and the one in Matthew is dealing with the tribulation period, and it says it's furnished with guests. You don't find guests here because this is a picture of something else. Then in chapter 15, you have two great stories, all dealing with God's restoration of the nation of Israel, <clears throat> in spite of what scholarship says. You've got the story of the 99 in 1 sheep, and you've got the story of the prodigal son, both pictures of Israel's spiritual condition, and both showing you that God will restore the nation of Israel, just like He says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Then Luke chapter 16, the great story on a man dying and going to hell, the rich man and Lazarus. One little interesting thing, you'll find that uh, the Bible always interprets itself. The Bible always defines itself. And you'll find that all through here, you'll find parables. 
But when it comes, and you'll find where he says, uh, and he spoke another parable unto them, or this parable he spake unto them. When it comes to Luke chapter 16, he doesn't give you the phrase, uh, this parable. You know why? Because Luke chapter 16 is not a parable. Luke chapter 16 is a real story. He didn't want somebody to tell you like the Jehovah Witness will tell you, well, that's just a parable. No, look very carefully here. Watch it very carefully. Lay it out very carefully. He'll tell you every time he's giving you a parable. And when he doesn't give you a parable, don't presume it's a parable. Never make the Bible say what it doesn't say. Chapter 17 and 18. More stories showing Israel's spiritual condition. You'll find a great verse here that shows you the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You'll find the uh, uh, Luke chapter 17 verse 21 and Romans chapter 14 verse 7 both tell you that the kingdom of uh, God is within you. kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom of peace, joy, righteousness, different from the kingdom of heaven. Then you get into chapter 18. And in chapter 18 you'll find the story of a, of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, and this is a great story, and uh, this is a great story. Jesus tells him all the things that he should do. And he says, I've done all those things from my youth up. And then Jesus says this, yet thou lackest one thing. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of an unsaved man or woman who's got everything in life, who thinks they've done all the religious things in life, who's went to church all their life, who's buried all the creeds all their life, who's burned candles all their life, done everything all their life, and except they lack one thing. You know, George Whitfield was a great preacher. And George Whitfield was called the Prince of Preachers. He preached all down the East Coast into Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, all those places back there in the early 1700s. And him and David Brainerd and Jonathan Edwards are probably three men that uh, did more to set this country on the right road with the right Bible than anybody that ever uh, in church history. And one time he was staying in some people's houses where he was holding a series of meetings. And they were good people, but they were lost people. I mean, they paid their debts and loved each other, you know, but they were lost. Went to church, but they were lost. Just good religious people. And Whitfield stayed in their home. And they came to hear him preach every night, you know, never got saved. And the day he was getting ready to leave and uh, uh, he was up there getting his stuff ready, it was winter time, and the window was all frosted. And on that window he took his ring and he wrote right on that thing, on that window in the frost, yet thou lackest one thing, which was a quotation out of Luke chapter 17. After he left, that woman come up there to uh, fix the bed and clean up the bed and change the linen and all that stuff. You know, she looked at that window and by that time it had melted to the place where it was hanging down there and you could read her right across there like it was written in blood. Yet thou lackest one thing. She called her husband and on that same spot when they saw that they both fell on their knees and trusted Christ as their own personal Savior. You know what? You can have everything in the world. You can have every religion. You can do every religious experience the world has to offer. And if you don't have Christ, yet thou lackest one thing. Great study. Great study. Great study. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 19, another great concept of counseling principle, and that's the story of Zacchaeus. And this is a great story on restitution. And Zacchaeus, you know the story. He's a little guy and a uh, little stature, and Jesus comes that way, climbs up in a sycamore tree. And when Jesus comes by, stops, looks up, says, Zacchaeus, make haste, because I'm going to spend some time with you today. And uh, when he comes down through there, they go over there and he gets saved, and, you know, and the Lord talks to him. And he, he says, Lord, he says, you know what? He says, I'm so happy for what having you in my life. He said, I'll tell you what. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give half my goods to the poor. And if I've done anything wrong to any man, I'm going to restore to him fourfold. And that story is a great counseling principle when you start to deal with people that have to make amends to their family or in circumstances. 
And the first thing you see down here in verse 8, he's got the right motive. He wants to do it because it's the right thing to do before God. There's an interesting concept here when he says, I want to restore fourfold. Because that's the biblical principle out of Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, and 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6. That's what God required of David. He said, you took that little lamb, you're going to restore that lamb four, four for one. Four for one. You see, sometimes when you hurt somebody by your foolishness, your family, your, your wife, your kids, sometimes when you just do some stupid things and your lifestyle is at a place where it just uh, really caused some things and you caused some people some hurt, sometimes cost always higher than it appears. Sometimes saying, I'm sorry, just ain't enough. Sometimes you have to wait and be patient for God to move in and heal it. You know, all this concept here is, shows you that sometimes we get in the eye set because, you know, we're right with God now that it's got to be okay with everybody else. And sometimes it just doesn't work that way, especially within your family. You see, the real key to fixing problem in relationship is understanding not what you've done to yourself, but what you've done to others. And then understanding that sometimes you have to do some things to turn that thing around. Sometimes just saying, I'm sorry, isn't enough. You have to be patient. You have to work through it. You have to deal with it. You have to bear the burden. You have to carry out the trash sometimes. But all through this, his, it was all his idea, and he's all happy to do it. He's got the right attitude. You know what I look for? When I look for somebody that wants to do what's right, when I want somebody who wants to tell me, well, Bob, you know what? I want to fix my marriage. I want to fix my, my family. I want to fix my kids, whatever the case. I always look for somebody that when you start to talk with them, they don't give you any ultimatum they just simply say you know what whatever I have to do is what I'll do whatever I have to do to fix the problem just tell me I'll do it how many times you've seen people that have come to the place where they got into situations and then to fix it they want to fix it on their terms and sometimes it can't go on your terms you know why because it's your turns that got it in a mess in the first place sooner or later you just got to put it in God's terms great counseling principle then in chapter 20, we see the whole chapter dedicated to how the scribes and the Pharisees come after him, how they try to trip him up in his talk. Chapter 21, he talks about the last days, the destruction of the temple. And uh, then he gives you an example in verse 1 of the poor widow and how her heart and what she gave was much more than everybody else who gave with the wrong heart. Then we come in chapter 22 and 23. And in those two chapters, you have the great story of the crucifixion of the Son of Man. I got one thing I want to, you know, everybody knows the story of the crucifixion. I got one thing I want to draw your attention to here. Another one of these little things the Holy Spirit of God puts in here. Found down in verse 38 of chapter 23. Bible says when they crucified him, they put him on that cross. They put an inscription over his head. And the Bible is very, very, very clear to tell you in verse 38 that they put it in three languages. Bible says they put this as Jesus, King of the Jews, or this is the King of the Jews. The Bible says they put it in Greek, they put it in Latin, they put it in Hebrew. You know, when I tell you that God came to all men, I mean God came to all men. When the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, He's talking about all men. When the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, He's talking about the whole world. You say, how do you know that? I know it from places like this. You see, this is a behind-the-scenes thing. This is one of those things where the Holy Spirit of God tells you the story and then through the story shows you great principles. You ever under, and why, I wonder why he put it in Greek, put it in Latin, and he put it in Hebrew? I'll tell you why. Because every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet 
come from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, the sons of Noah. Everybody on this planet, out of Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, come from one of those three boys. Japheth, he's the Gentile, there's your Greek. Ham, he's the African, there's your Latin. Shem, he's the Jew, there's your Hebrew. When he crucified my Savior and put him on that cross, they didn't have any idea what they were doing when they said, put that title, he's the king of the Jews. Put it in Greek, put it in Latin, and put it in Hebrew. They had no idea. They were telling all three races, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. He's your Savior. He's come for you, and he's dying on that cross for you. Those little things in the Bible is what makes the Bible different. When somebody gets up and tells you the Bible just like any other book or God didn't have a hand in the translation of that Bible, men will never see things like that. To them, the Bible is just literature. The Bible, to them, the Bible is just writings. To them, the Bible is just dead old languages, that dusty languages of civilizations that are long gone that they like to hang around and tweak the words out of, but it's not a living book. It's not a li alive. The book that I got, God covers that theme all the way through it, that he died for every man, woman, and child. And every man, woman, and child on this planet came with either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. And he lays that thing out. Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Then you come to chapter 24. Chapter 24 is our last chapter, and it's the resurrection of Christ. And I want to give you in here, and you know about the resurrection. We've been through it all many, many times. We've covered all different aspects. But I want, to, I want to go back to just a second to the thought that I gave you in Luke chapter 21, uh, 10, verse 21, where Jesus rejoiced. He rejoiced because of the fact that he, God hid the Word of God from the educated crowd that wanted to stand in subjection to the or in, make the Word of God in subjection to them. But he gave the Word of God to babes. There's two verses in the Bible that for me personally in learning the Bible are two of the greatest verses. I'm going to give you one today. I'm going to give you one next week. But the one that I'm going to give you the one today is in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, and you better get this one down because this is the way that it is. I don't care where you go to school. I don't care how much education you got. I don't care how much time you spend getting your Ph.D., your doctor's degree in theology, and how many time you spend in seminary or where you go. I'm telling you this right now. Luke chapter 24, verse 45 says this, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. You can go to the greatest schools in the world. You can study their ancient languages to come out your ears. But unless God's Holy Spirit opens up your understanding, you're not getting anything out of that book. It's not based. It's not based on your aptitude. It's not based on your education. It's based on your attitude of heart and your intimacy with the Holy Spirit of God. When you have the right relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, He'll open up your understanding and then and only then that you might understand the Scriptures. They're His. And that's why He said Jesus rejoiced. Jesus rejoiced because He knew that God was going to close out the educated world who always come to God in a subjective mode, who always come to God like the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus, always tempting Him, always trying to entangle Him in His talk, always trying to get Him to say something He never meant to say. That's the way they work it. And a lot of God's people and a lot of preachers come the same way. You know what? That's why they don't get anything out of the Word of God. That's why they don't, have, they don't have the power of God in their life. They have programs in their life. That's why they do everything the way they do it, because they can't get That's why they come up with every concept. You watch it. It starts on the West Coast, and then it just floods right across the United States to the East Coast. Some new idea. Some church out in the West Coast gets big crowds. Everybody buys into it. It's just like the wave at the Chief Stadium. Everybody tries it. 
But you know what? He stays with a tried and tested true way to do it, and that is just teaching people the Word of God. Because the Word of God is not popular today. It may not be popular, my friend, but it's right. And it is the only way that God honors it. And if you're going to learn anything about God in the Scriptures, it's only going to come because He opens your understanding that you might understand the Scriptures. The only way to learn the book is through the Holy Spirit of God, and the only way to have the Holy Spirit of God is to have an intimate relationship with Him. One time years ago, years ago, D.L. Moody was a great preacher. And he was in Chicago there at uh, Moody Church. Moody Church is pretty much a cemetery and a funeral home at this point in time, but there was a time when it was a grand place. And Moody would travel around the country, he would travel around the world and preach. And there was a church that, uh, that he'd go to, that a particular Baptist church that he went to, that they didn't care much for him, but the people loved him, preacher loved him, some of the deacons didn't care much for him. And they had him year after year after year at the great Bible conference. Now one day when they sat down to plan for the next year, the pastor said, well, we need to set a, while we're in here, we need to set a date for the confidence we're going to have with Moody. And one of the old deacons, they had about all they could handle, you know, and was, every time Moody came, he lost a little bit more power, you know, and got his sins exposed, and, and everybody saw how rotten he was, or he thought they did, you know. He had it pretty well covered up. But he says, Pastor, he says, I don't understand why we got to have Moody back. Has, has Moody got some kind of corner on the Holy Spirit of God? Pastor looked at him and said, no, deacon, he doesn't. But you know what? The Holy Spirit of God got the corner on Moody. And folks, that's where it's at. It's not how much of you have a God, it's how much a God has of you. It's about why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do the things that I say. It's why that when you hear the truth, it makes you upset. You always tell where Christians at by when they get whacked with a book, when somebody preaches to them, how well they take it. I mean, a uh, real Christian has to be meso, what's that word, Will you maseretic, beat yourself, whip yourself? A real Christian has to be something like that. Uh, yeah, a masochist, a masochist, a masochist, who? A masco, masochistic. Is that like masticholi without sauce? I don't know, but anyway. That's what you got to be. You go in there and somebody takes your hide off and preach the Word of God, and you say, wow, that felt good. 